The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Scripture reading for this evening comes from 1 Kings 19, verses 19 through 21. This is number eight in a series on the life of Elijah, titled Zeal for Righteousness in Evil Days. The passage we're reading is on page 301 in the Pew Bible. Starting at verse 19, it says this, So Elijah departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. This is the word of the Lord. The flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of the Lord shall last forever. When was the last time you received a call that changed your life? In June 2014, we had been waiting two years to adopt. We had a family of five, and we thought, we're just not done. We think God wants us to have one more. And we got a call, and I remember that call changed my life. A birth mom had chosen us to be the parents of her baby girl, and we brought her home, and we named her Mia. We bonded with her very quickly, and she became a kefir. Then a week later, we got another call. While I was at a Disciple Makers conference, the adoption agency called and said that the birth mom had changed her mind. So heartbroken, we gathered as a family, and I remember opening Job 121, and we sang together, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I remember just how exhausted and discouraged, in fact, how depressed I was after that. We were as a whole family, the kids included. And we didn't think we could walk through another emotional train wreck like that. And so we were about to call the adoption agency and tell them to to close our file after waiting for two years when we got another call. And this time, it wasn't a call for just parenting one child, but two And we answered that, yes, we are open to that. Not believing at all that the birth mom would choose a family of five to place two more in, but she did. And we brought home a bouncing baby boy named Michael, who was four, and a beautiful little girl named Margo, who's six, and you've all probably gotten to know them. The Lord 
has made them kefers in every way. And they have changed my life. You know, God's call will change your life, but not necessarily in the way you expect. Looking at this text, I want to ask two questions. How do we understand God's call? And then how do we answer it? And as we understand God's call, it becomes pretty clear that God's call is always good, but it's not easy. It's uh, comprehensive, but not something we'll totally comprehend. Look at verse 19. It says, So Elijah departed from there, that is Mount Horeb, and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed him by and cast his cloak upon him. Now, on the face of it, this is a rather odd interaction. Elijah, it says, doesn't even interview Elisha. He he doesn't even stop to greet Elisha or to talk to Elisha or to explain what was going on and how he was being called by God. Instead of stopping, he passes by Elisha, casting his cloak upon him, and continues walking. What is going on? To understand this, we have to remember who Elijah is and where he's coming from. First, well, Elijah's no stranger to Israel. The people, the king, the priests, the prophets, all know that Elijah has been confirmed time and time again through miracles that he is the true prophet of Yahweh. He told King Ahab that it would not rain for three years, and it didn't rain. Then he called down fire from heaven, and fire came down from heaven, and he prayed for rain, and finally, after three years, it rained, proving that he was the true prophet of Yahweh, showing that Baal was not God, but Yahweh was God. See, Elijah was clearly the confirmed prophet who publicly stood against Baal worship. That's who he was, and little doubt that Elisha understood that, and that this casting of his cloak was was a passing of the baton to the next prophet. But in order to understand more, we have to understand where Elisha came from. See, Elijah was coming from Mount Horeb, where he had just met with God on the very same mountain where God talked to Moses face to face and entered into covenant with the Israelites when they came out of the Exodus. We have to ask, well, why was Elijah at Mount Horeb? Well, Elijah was fleeing for his life. Jezebel, the queen of wicked Ahab, had threatened to kill him. But he was not just fleeing for his life. He was at Mount Horeb bringing formal legal complaint against the nation of Israel for their continued stubbornness and idolatry. See, the leadership of Israel had refused to repent, despite all of Elijah's zealous work as the only prophet willing to publicly speak out against Jezebel and Ahab but they refused to repent and worship. And and the Israelites, the people, continued to waver in their repentance. One moment they seemed eager to serve the one true God, Yahweh, and the next moment they're returning to Baal worship. They're still playing games. Their repentance was at best short-lived. So Elijah was coming from Mount Horeb, fleeing for his life, complaining against Israel, and he was also there because he was complaining He was overwhelmed with exhaustion and discouragement. God had sent Elijah to Mount Horeb to sustain him. 
not just his physical well-being, but, but his spiritual health. It's not hard to understand why Elijah was so exhausted and despairing after a decisive victory against Baal and his 450 prophets. No doubt Elijah was thinking, finally, God, vindication, revival. Your people have seen that Baal is the false god and you are the true god. And it's likely that he expected the nation to repent and a renewal of leadership. But after Ahab tells Queen Jezebel what happened about the slaughter of Baal's prophet, she sends a messenger to Elijah saying, May the gods do to me and more so if I do not make your life as one of the lives of Baal's prophets by this time tomorrow. Well, this Elijah realizes nothing's really changed. It's as if Elijah had finished running a marathon. He crossed the finish line expecting victory. He's exhausted but optimistic, and he's only being told, you still got to run, buddy. It's not over. Despite the miracles of fire from heaven, despite ending a 3.5-year famine, Jezebel remains unchanged, and Ahab does nothing to intervene to check his wife. And so it appears that nothing has changed. And Elijah is exhausted and discouraged and exclaims, It is enough now, O Lord. Take my life. But God's not finished with Elijah. He sends him to Mount Horeb to tenderly minister to him. First, physically, on his way, he sends an angel to give him food and sleep. And then at Horeb, God listens. To Elijah's complaint against Israel, their continued lack of repentance. And when God passes by Elijah, a great wind tears the mountains apart, then a fire, then an earthquake. And what is most surprising is how God chooses to reveal himself to Elijah. Not, not in the storm, not in the fire, not primarily in the earthquake, but through the sound of a low whisper, a tender voice. What does this mean? Maybe God was reminding Elijah to trust him and what he said, not in his circumstances. Unlike Baal, he was not in the storms or in the fire or in the earthquake. See, Baal was a part of creation. He was in the storms. He was the God of storm, but Yahweh was above them, controlling them. Maybe he was saying, don't worry, Elijah, I'm still working my plan After the terrifying storms of life you've been through, I remain in control. My plan cannot be frustrated, Elijah. In fact, my plan can only be accomplished after the storms and after the fire and after the earthquake. Only then will my people hear my voice. So God comforts his exhausted and discouraged prophet by setting his story in context that his marvelous acts that he has performed are not ineffective, but neither are they sufficient. Only God's word is sufficient. And so God says, keep doing what I've asked. Keep preaching. Keep representing me. Trust me. Do what I ask and watch me work. And then he tells Elijah to anoint Hazel king over Syria, Jehu king over Israel, and Elisha a prophet in his place. And he departs. Elijah departs from Mount uh, Horeb, his body refreshed, his hope renewed. 
Now, why am I telling you all this context? Why all this backstory? Because if we want to understand God's call in our life, we need to consider those who've gone before us. And the one who went before Elisha was Elijah. And no doubt he looked at Elijah and saw that God had used Elijah powerfully, calling down fire from heaven. And so we could take heart that God will do amazing things through us. But we also need to take warning that it's not easy, that it's costly and exhausting, that Elijah was not just the victorious prophet who called down fire from heaven, but he was a suffering servant who had to live life on the run, rejected and persecuted. And understanding God's call means not being surprised by unexpected hardship, difficulty, persecution, rejection. Being set apart by God doesn't mean a life of ease and comfort and material blessing. Yes, God's call in your life will be exciting. It will be an adventure. It will be transforming, and it will be good. But it will not be easy. Don't be naive and believe those who believe in Jesus and follow God will have all their troubles disappear. They won't. Sometimes your troubles will get worse. And so you need to allow room for surprises, unexpected surprises, because honestly, we can never completely understand God's call upon our lives. Who'd have thought that after a complete victory at Mount Carmel, people would remain stubborn, resistant to God, determined in their sinful disobedience, and yet that's exactly what happened. And while we never understand why sometimes things take so long before we see redemption, we must believe that God is always at work for good, even when we can't see it, even when, like Elijah, we think we're losing ground. God is always working for good, even when we can't see it. I think that's what God was teaching Elijah when he came in the storm, and then he came in the fire, and then he came in the earthquake, but afterwards he spoke with his word, saying, after all those things, I'm still here. My word is still at work. We need to remember that. That's true whether you're a pastor or a lay leader. That's true whether you're a spouse or a widow or someone who is separated and divorced. That's true whether you're a parent of young children or adult children. There are different issues and different struggles at various times of life. It's true for your work and your play. God is always at work even when you can't see it. His kingdom is advancing. You may think you can anticipate all of God's call upon your life will mean but you're in for a surprise. You can never completely understand God's call. Big picture, maybe, but details, never. And so as we consider those who've gone before us, we need to understand God's call more soberly in our lives, that it is a good call, but like for Elijah, it's a hard call, and we need to accept the unavoidable uncertainty that comes with it. And that leads to our second point, answering God's call. What can we learn from Elisha's response to God? Three things. We must, never an- we must answer God's call, no matter how suddenly it may come, verse 19, no matter how costly it may be, verse 20, and no matter what, answer joyfully. 
Notice how suddenly God's call may come. Elisha, in verse 19, the son of Shaphat, was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th, and then Elijah passes him by and casts his cloak upon him. Elisha started his day at work like any other day. He went to the stall, he got his oxen, he led them to the field, and he started plowing. That's what he was supposed to do every other day. Then all of a sudden, Elijah starts walking across the field. He casts his cloak upon him and passes him by. And how unexpected that must have been. Dale Davis records a story that he read in his hometown newspaper. In August 2000, Howard Hammer took off in his homemade single-engine plane and was flying over Oregon when he lost power and decided to attempt an emergency landing on northbound US-97. Fulberto Ambriz was driving his flatbed truck north on US-97 and unknowingly drove under Hamer's plane at the very moment Mr. Hamer was trying to settle his aircraft on the highway. Hamer, the pilot, never saw the truck since he was watching for southbound traffic and trying to keep the plane's nose up. Ambriz knew nothing of the plane until he felt a bump and heard a loud bang. The propeller caught on the truck's sleeper. The plane's nose remained there while the tail dropped onto the flatbed trailer. Neither man was injured. Now that doesn't happen to most truck drivers on their average day of work. There's no way Mr. Ambriz woke up that morning and said, Today's the day. I know it. I'm going to be driving my truck and some runaway plane is going to use my flatbed as a runway. No, he was simply doing what he normally does. And literally, out of the blue, a plane landed on his truck. That's probably similar to how Elisha felt the day Elijah trekked across the field, tossed him his cloak, and kept walking. God's call may come suddenly, and most unexpectedly. And we like to think that God will abide by our schedule and our plan, and many times God in his mercy does, but not always. God may call you suddenly and unexpectedly, and at such times you may be tempted to assume that it cannot be of God. It's too chaotic and unpredictable. But what seems sudden to you has been settled in the mind of God for quite some time. How does this apply? God is always entitled to command your obedience at any given moment. But if you're anything like me, you assume that means any convenient moment. But see, God often does his best work at our inconvenience. And truth be told... Too many of us hold our plans with clenched fist and we grow blind and deaf to God's call in our life. All of us are commanded to witness for Christ, to reach our neighbors. And I don't know about you, but I have in my mind what that should look like. And what that entails is inviting my neighbors over for the evening so we can have dinner and play games and enter into great conversation and build trust. 
But after several invitations where I've been rebuffed, it, it becomes really unnerving. And you know what becomes really even more unnerving is when the guy shows up early on Saturday morning when I'm still enjoying my coffee and asks to borrow tools. See, but God's call comes unexpectedly like that, doesn't it? Is God any less capable of opening doors to witnessing opportunities through giving tools and serving as he is to playing games and eating dinner? God's call often comes unexpectedly. Are your eyes open to what he is calling you to? Recognize that God's call is not always expected. Elisha's call dramatizes what ought to always be true in our lives, namely that we are servants who must be ready to do our master's will. So answer God's call no matter how suddenly it comes. But notice also how costly it may be. In verse 20, it says, He left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back then. For what have I done to you? And he turned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of oxen. Notice Elisha left the oxen. And remember, he was driving the 12th pair. This indicates that Elisha's family, his father most likely, was very rich. Even if they were borrowing oxen from the neighbors to plow their field, they must have had a very large field. And so this meant that Elisha was leaving financial security. And notice, too, he appeals to Elijah, let me kiss my father and mother, then I will follow you. See, he knew that answering this call would mean leaving his family behind, all that was safe, all that was familiar. Now, there's some who question, did did Elijah and his response, did it demonstrate an eager willingness or, or hesitation? But as we look closely, his actions show he's willing to make a complete break He sacrificed his means of income in verse 21, the oxen, and he burns the yokes, not just any old tree, but the yokes, symbolizing a complete break with his past of farming. He shows an obvious desire to comply with Elijah, no matter the cost, and Elijah permits him to go back again. Some people compare Elisha's response to Jesus' rebuke to the man in Luke 9, who said to Jesus, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at home. And and Jesus replied to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I would simply urge you caution when comparing two very different men in two very different contexts. See, Jesus was the master disciple maker. And he had no trouble telling two different people different things depending on the state of their heart. Because in that same passage in Luke 9, one of the followers says, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus essentially reminds him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I, I think you need to go home and think about the cost before you come and follow me. And then he turns around and the guy says, I want to think about the cost. He says, no, don't stop thinking, come and follow me. See, so he said, Jesus knew the individual struggles of the heart. But see, Elijah had considered the cost, and he was ready to answer God's call no matter how costly. How does this apply? What costs stand in your way of following God's call? 
It's not unlikely that the same obstacles stand in your way as stood in Elisha's day. Family, security, comfort, wealth. This is going to sound extremely arrogant, but I've got to be honest with you. I never considered myself a greedy person until I became a homeowner and had kids. Designer clothes, I could care less. New car, never needed a new car. A used car was just fine for me. But as a homeowner and as a father, I've discovered a heart in gr- of greed that surprises me and actually this past week nauseated me. Long story short, I've been praying for three months for God to bring the right person to buy our home. Prayed that they'd offer a fair price. And incidentally, I also prayed that God wouldn't let the godless man down the street sell his house before me. And our real estate agent, many of you know her, Julie Diener, called last Friday saying, God has answered our prayer. We have a buyer and they really like your home. But over time, my thankfulness turned to feelings of uncertainty then feelings of being taken advantage of because they didn't quite offer what we hoped. And so instead of thanking God and accepting his sudden gift, I quibbled. And the buyers left, and we tried to get them back, accepting their offer and even throwing a few more thousand to sweeten the deal. But they had moved on. And now I see that you know, after the fact, hindsight's twenty twenty. that God was calling me to accept this gift without complaint or hesitation. But in the moment, I thought the cost was too high. See, hindsight's twenty twenty, And that's the way it often feels with God. In the moment, we think the cost is too high, but hindsight will always show and clarify beyond any doubt that it's always more costly not to answer God's call than to answer it. And Elisha, by faith, he understood the cost, but he was going to answer the call no matter that cost because he knew not answering it would prove more costly. Answer God's call no matter the cost. And notice how joyfully he answered at the end of verse 21. After he sacrifices his oxen, he gives the meat to the people and they ate and then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Elisha not only answered the call with commitment, he answered with joy. He didn't say, thank you, through grit teeth. No, he embraced his call with joyful celebration, with total abandonment. How? He held a feast. You know, this is not a man looking back in regret. This is a man looking ahead in joyful anticipation, asking friends and family to rejoice with him in the call that God has placed upon his life. No matter what, answer God's call with joyful hope. Are you embracing God's call with a joyful celebration? Has God called you to motherhood or fatherhood? Are your days filled with complaints and grumbling about your kids and the endless list of responsibilities? Or is it filled with gratitude and joyful hope for the blessing that God has given you in these children? Has God called you to old age? Are your days filled with mere reminiscing about the former days and complaining about all the aches and pains? Or do you embrace your days with gratitude 
seeing the honor that God has bestowed on you with your gray hair. Because not everyone makes it to old age. See, answer God's call. No matter how suddenly it may come, no matter how costly it may be, no matter what, answer it joyfully. Well, that still leaves one question, and that's a question of motivations. Why should we answer God's call? What, What motivates us? There's one word, answer, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And it can be broken down into three aspects or three words, duty, love, and joy. See, we we tend to separate those motivations, but God doesn't, and neither did Elijah or Elisha. See, properly understood, joy comes when we love our duty. Joy comes when we love our duty. So how can we love our duty to answer God's call, no matter the cost? Well, first, we cannot gloss over the fact that God's call upon our life is our duty. And don't let anyone convince you otherwise. God is in charge. He has full authority over your life. You owe all things to your creator. He holds all rights to your life. And when he calls you, You and I are obliged to obey, plain and simple. It is our duty. And grace does not relieve us of that duty. But it does transform that duty into joy. How? Well, love is the transforming power. Thankfully, God is not just all-powerful. He is all-good. He is steadfast and faithful in his love. And we saw it when Elijah was exhausted and discouraged. What what did God do? Smack him down? Rebuke him? Yell at him? No, God sent an angel to comfort him with food and allow him to rest in the wilderness. And then God spoke to him, not in a yell, but in a tender whisper that restored his hope and his joy. See, the love of God transform Elijah's heart and Elisha's heart and made their duty their joy. But see, we have even more calls for joy. See, God brought Elijah to Horeb to heal his spiritual depression. And God showed his wonderful power at Mount Carmel against the prophets of Baal, but we have an even better mountain. We get to see God's extravagant power and his lavish love at a different mountain, on Mount Zion at Calvary. There we behold, not simply a prophet who answered God's call, but God's very own son, Jesus Christ. Jesus answered the Father's call no matter the cost, And though his death was unexpected to the disciples and they didn't get it, Jesus knew that he must be crucified and rise three days later. Jesus embraced his call to pay the full cost of our debt, the full penalty of our sin and our idolatry, and he answered it with joyful obedience. Hebrews 12.2 says, Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
See, this Jesus, unique in importance as the Son of God and beauty and love, made us sinners as we are, his pride and joy. His joy was to redeem us from our sin and to restore us to a right relationship with God, to restore us to a royal position in heaven. And inasmuch as we understand his joy was to endure the cross to get us back out of love for us, it will transform how we receive God's call in our life. We won't answer out of a mere sense of obligation and duty. But with pure joy, what a privilege, what an honor. Have you ever gotten in the way of a teenager who was receiving the call from someone who was holy? Holy means special. That special someone who is uniquely important, uniquely wonderful, uniquely beautiful. Have you ever tried to step between them and the phone call that they're trying to answer? Watch out. Why? Being loved by a uniquely important person leads us to respond with ravenous joy and eager determination to respond to each and every call, each and every request. We want to please them. We want to answer the call. We want to do their will. And it's more than just duty. It's our pleasure. And may God give us the grace to see the unique beauty of Jesus, his holiness, how special he is, and that he, He's calling us, and it's his joy to do whatever it takes to be with us, to delight in us. And when we get that, we will respond with joy that comes because we love our duty. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. We thank you that your call, though it's not easy, it's good. We thank you that you've given us those who've gone before us. For Elisha, you gave him Elijah so that we can look at those who've gone before and be sobered to understand that your, your call, it's exciting. It's an adventure, but it's hard. And so God, help us to have sober expectations and help us to answer your call. No matter the cost, no matter the timing, and to answer it with joy because you are the Holy One. You are the special one who has called us to be part of your plan. What a privilege, what an honor. We pray that all of us here, whatever we're struggling with with our call, that you would melt our hearts, that we might find joy in the call that you have given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.